Good morning, everybody. Not sure if we have a scripture reader, so I guess I will do that for us. Uh, if you would, please stand in recognition of the authority of God's Word. Our passage is up there. It's Galatians chapter 4. Um, what do we have? We have verses 4 through 7. So let me read that for us right now. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. You may be seated. Well, if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Dan. My wife, Lauren, and I have been members here at Christ Community for about five and a half years. Uh, This morning, we are going to be continuing through our Advent series on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And just want to open our time with a question for us to consider as we think about this topic. And my question is, what does it mean, what do you think it means to be truly human? There's obviously a lot of ways we can try and answer that question. Seems to me that one commonly shared understanding that we have of what it means to be human is to be prone to error. That's why we have phrases like human error, or when we mess up, we excuse ourselves or we excuse others by saying, well, they are human after all. Where we say things like, to err is to be human. Our experience of humanity can be so filled with neg- negative examples of human beings, whether that be on the news, um, having experienced interpersonal or relational hurt, a recognition of our own failures. Or I guess if you're like our friend Tony, just being an Illini football fan for years and years. Either way, I think we can easily fall into this understanding, this way of understanding humanity as simply messed up, prone to error, inherently flawed. And we can think that this is what it means to be human. There's a common expression in Chinese Meibanfa, which translated goes something like, can't help it, can't do anything about it. It's a way of expressing a a sense of acceptance of a particular hardship or difficulty. And so I wonder if many of us have that same sort of attitude toward our own human experience. We look at the imperfection, we look at the failures, the sins of those around us, and maybe even the sins in our own lives, and we shrug our shoulders and simply say, Meibanfa, can't help it. There's nothing we can do about it. But in the Advent, the coming of Jesus Christ, we are presented with an alternate narrative. Last week, Craig introduced our Advent series, talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, which is the doctrine of God, the Son, taking on human flesh. And so today, my assignment is to help us examine the birth of Christ 
and specifically, uh, and what that means for us, and specifically what that means for us and for our understanding of what it means to be human. And so what I hope to show us this morning from our passage is that in order to be truly human, you must know the God who became human. In order to be truly human, you must know the God who himself became human. Let me pray for us and ask God's blessing on our time. Lord, this is, uh, this is your word to us. And I just ask that your spirit would be at work in each one of our lives. Teaching us, showing us, opening the eyes of our hearts to understand what it is you have for us this morning. Father, I pray that today and really through this whole Advent series, you would just um, marvel us. Leave us in awe of who you are and what you have done in coming to be our Savior. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I read, uh, our passage this morning comes from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. If you look back to the previous verses and read starting from the beginning of chapter 4 in Galatians, what, what we'll see is that the idea that comes to us in verses 4 through 7 is being built from this analogy that's presented that's first presented to us in verses 1 through 3. It's the it's the analogy of the child heir. So if you have your Bible, you can read with me um, just starting in verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Some of you might have written wills for yourselves, and in the event of your death, um, you've instructed that all of your assets go to your children. But if your children are young, or you feel that they're not yet ready to manage those assets, then they will probably first be in... Um, entrusted to some sort of executor of your will, a guardian or manager of the will. Meanwhile, the child, let's say they now have a million dollars attached to their name. But as long as they are a child, they cannot live like a millionaire. They're under guardians and managers who control those assets. They don't have the freedom to live like a millionaire. They're not yet able to live the life that their parents have intended for them to live. But there's an appointed event, right, when the child becomes a certain age that that then triggers the inheritance and then the money becomes fully theirs. That heir can now live out of the fullness of his of their true identity. And so our passage says in verse 3 that in the same way also, when we were children, spiritually speaking, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We have a heavenly Father who created us, who created humanity with an intended purpose. And that purpose was to bless us, 
Consider that in Genesis 1, the first chapter of the Bible, when God made the world and when he made man and woman, the first thing that he said to them, so the very first words that Adam and Eve heard coming out of God's mouth to them was a word of blessing. And look at Genesis 1.28. And so to be human, to be truly human, ultimately, is to be blessed by God. What does that blessing look like? Well, it looks like Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. It looks like living in the presence of God. It looks like having fellowship with God. It looks like obedience to God, listening to his word. It looks like enjoying his love for us, being filled with delight for all that God is for us and all that God desires to give us. And that is the essence of the true human experience. That is what we were made for. However, our passage that we read tells us that we became enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Like the child heir who is not yet able to live the life that he was intended to live, we also became unable to live the life that God intended for us to live. We're held in slavery by these elementary principles of the world. These principles are um, principles, teachings, or worldviews, which arise from a worldly wisdom. In other words, they arise out of a wisdom that comes apart from God. And just for the sake of this sermon, drawing in the broadest of strokes, these elementary principles of the world typically look like either legalism or relativism. So if our basic perspective of humanity is that we're, we're flawed individuals, prone to error, prone to mistake, then the principle, the idea of legalism tries to offer a way out. Because legalism says, follow these rules. Do this, don't do that. Behave like this, don't behave like that. If you do these things, then humanity will be better. Legalism looks like many of the the world's religions, which promote some system of laws or sacrifices or rituals that, if you do them, will make you acceptable to God. Legalism can also look a lot like the political rhetoric of our day. Conform to these positions, these values, these ideas, these beliefs, and you'll be accepted. Or, on the flip side, if our basic perspective of humanity is that we're flawed individuals prone to error and mistake, then that principle of relativism is kind of like a concession, right? Relativism says, so what? There are no ultimate rules. There is no transcendent guiding principle. The self, myself, I am the final determinator of what is right and wrong, of what I should or should not do. But both of these principles, both of these, legalism, relativism, are elementary principles of the world. In in other words, they're a way of looking at the human condition, of of trying to understand uh, humanity and approaching it apart from God. And our passage, passage says that these principles 
enslave us. They enslave us by keeping us, um, disabling us from living the life that we were intended to live with God. So just a question for us to consider this morning. Which of these do you find yourself more prone to? Legalism or relativism? Even if you are in Christ, even if you are a Christian, right? Are you still tempted by that, I, that idea that legalism presents to you that through your behavior, through your deeds, you can earn God's love for you? Or are you still tempted by relativism and that, that idea that God's laws don't apply to you? Or maybe you're like me, and so you're a legalist when other people mess up. But when you mess up, everything is relative. Nothing matters, right? The point is, that I'm trying to make, is that these, these elementary principles of the world, this wisdom apart from God, this worldview, um, this way of living, this way of approaching humanity, separate from faith in God, they ultimately dehumanize us. They, they enslave us, as our passage says, because they keep us from the life we were created for, which is life with God. To be known by God, to be accepted by God, to be loved by God, to be blessed by God. If you're more prone to legalism, you're unable to be with God because no matter how hard you try, you can never live that perfectly righteous life that a holy God requires. If you're more prone to relativism, You're unable to live with God because, well, you've made yourself into a God and you've rejected the one true God who made you and who loves you. But like the child heir, there was also a date that was set by our Heavenly Father for an appointed event that would enable our freedom so that we could finally, at last, live the life that we were created for. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The sending forth of God's Son to adopt us as his children was an event foreknown and pre-planned by God the Father from all of eternity. Ephesians 1 You can flip there if you'd like, or you can just listen. Ephesians 1 puts it like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. When you really want something, you tend to think about that thing for a long time. That's what you're supposed to tell yourself when you're, like, shopping, right? Like, do I really want this? If I wait until tomorrow or next week, will I still want it then? Do I really want that massage chair from Costco? I kind of do. Just consider for a moment that if you're a Christian, that that if you have trusted in Christ, that God has wanted you before the foundation of this world. When nothing else existed, nothing except God, you were on his mind. 
This also shows us, once again, the eternality, the divinity of the Son, right? Jesus is the divine second person of the Trinity who was planned to be sent forth at the fullness of time. And when he was sent forth, he was born of woman. That is to say, he was born just like any of us were born. Human. The fully God, second person of the Trinity, was made fully human. Just to be clear, Jesus, when that happened, did not lose any part, any part of his divinity, but his divinity was now united with his humanity. Fully God and fully human. So I hope we can just take a moment to to marvel at that, right? That God the Son was made human by a, by a mother who he himself made as her creator. Jesus was born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. The New City Catechism, if you're familiar with it, asks this question, why must the Redeemer be truly human? And the answer is that in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. Jesus, as a human, was subject to the law's requirements, just like us. But unlike us, Jesus perfectly obeyed the law. He perfectly lived in the presence of God. He had perfect fellowship with God. He perfectly delighted in and enjoyed God. Jesus, in other words, lived the life that we were supposed to live, but could not. And in doing so, Jesus gives us a picture of true and perfect humanity. Jesus was, after all, the perfect human, the truest expression of human life. And so this is the significance of Christ's birth for us. Jesus was born fully human to redeem our humanity. When the, fir- uh, when the first human, Adam, and subsequently all of us, failed, while Adam and all of us failed, Jesus succeeded. And that success, Jesus' success, in other words, his righteousness, his obedience, was for us. If you want, you can look or listen to Romans five nineteen, which says, For as... By the one man's disobedience, referring to Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, referring to Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Jesus lived this perfect human life in total, complete obedience to everything that God required. But yet, at the end of his life, he was killed on a cross. Why? To redeem us. Because Jesus' perfect obedience was for us. So that anyone who trusts in him, who trusts in Jesus, would be made righteous. That perfect life that Jesus lived, his total obedience, his total trust, his perfect fellowship with God is now credited, is now given to us. And so neither our legalism nor our relativism can make us righteous. But the Son of God, at the fullness of time, pre-planned for all of eternity, and at just the right time, was born 
lived, died, and rose again, so that we all, through faith in him, might be made righteous and receive adoption as God's children. Look at verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That phrase, Abba, Father, is a phrase totally unique to Christianity. It was not something that was, you know, like commonly heard in other religious traditions at the time. Um, the first introdu- introduction that we have of someone addressing God in this way as Abba Father was Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, when he was praying in the garden before facing his death. He prayed, Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus, as a human being, he knew God as a father with a level of intimacy that was previously unmatched. And in his greatest moment of agony, praying, sweating blood, Jesus did not turn to legalism. He didn't pray, God, I obey the law. I didn't break any of the rules. I don't deserve death. Nor was he a relativist. He didn't pray, my life, my choice, not what you will, God, but what I will. Instead, Jesus threw himself into the arms of the one that he knew loved him most. And in complete trust and submission, he cried out, Abba, Father. One of our favorite shows to watch as a family is Bluey. If you're familiar, uh, Bluey is about a family of talking dogs who live in Australia. The Australian accent definitely makes it ten times better. The family is made up of a mom and dad, dog, and their young daughters, Bluey and Bingo. One of the strengths of the show is how it highlights the value and the significance of family. For me, it particularly enjoy watching the, the parent-child relationships that the show envisions. Um, the parents, they're not perfect, but they're present. They're there with their children. They're thoughtful. They're playful. They're instructive when needed. It's their presence and it's their voice that provides the framework for their young children's lives. Think, think, things like that touch us, right? Because they serve as a reflection of what it means to have God as our Father. To know His presence, His never-leaving presence in our lives. To know His constant care for us. To know that He disciplines us when He needs to, because He loves us. And to have His voice be the loving framework out of which we live our lives. In other words, to cry out, Abba, Father, again and again and again. That prayer, that phrase expresses in two words the kind of life that we're meant to live as human beings in perfect fellowship with the Father. This is the life that Jesus lived. This is the life that Jesus now enables us to live. Because when you see Jesus with eyes of faith, when you trust in him, 
you're finally free to live the life that you were meant to live. You're set free from those elementary principles of the world which previously enslaved you. You are forgiven of your sin. You're brought to God. You've been clothed or covered with the perfect life, the perfect righteousness of Christ. And now you're known by God. You're loved by God. You're accepted by God. You're a child of God. You call him Abba, Father. At last, you're finally truly fully human because to to be truly human you must know the god who was born human so to conclude here's just one way where i think all of this might be applied into our lives man i think that time between thanksgiving and christmas um, to me always feels like just this massive pressure cooker because you start with Black Friday, right? And these deals, one day only, actually for the whole month. But they stress you out because then you're thinking about all the things that you need to buy, Christmas gifts, all the things you want to buy. And then you're like, should I buy it? I don't know, should I wait? And you're thinking about travel plans and maybe some of us are actually really dreading seeing our family. And other, others of us are grieving because we're not able to see our family. And then in the midst of all that, You want to be thoughtful about Advent, but that just gets so easily lost in the shuffle. So I think a lot of us, um, by the time January rolls around, feel tired, frustrated, uh, stressed, disappointed. So my prayer for us this morning has been that in those disappointments, we wouldn't just shrug our shoulders and say, well, can't do anything about that. And that's It's tough not to do that, right? Because I know how easy it is to give in to that despair or anger or resignation. But one of the reasons why we gather as God's people, as a church, is to remind ourselves, is to encourage one another with the hope that we do have in Christ. So maybe for each one of us, just take a moment to consider who is one person in your life that you can encourage with the hope of Christ during this Christmas season. Because, brothers and sisters, we do have hope because in the birth of Jesus, we are presented with an alternate narrative for humanity. In Christ's birth, we see a picture of human life as it was meant to be experienced. We see intimacy with God the Father, not as this, you know, idealized aspiration but as a way that has now been made possible for us through the redeeming work of Christ, who perfectly obeyed the whole law, who suffered the punishment for our sins to adopt us as sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that in the fullness of time, Christ was born fully human, fully God, to redeem us from our sins so that we might receive adoptions, adoption as your children. Lord, I pray that more and more you would help us as your people to live in the freedom of that identity, to love you, to praise you, to walk with you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.